Uh, well, good morning. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Cody Tooley. I'm the student pastor here. Uh, and, uh, and I get to the, the joy and honor of getting to come in and bring the word uh, this morning. And so uh, we're going to be in Mark chapter 3. Uh, Mark chapter 3 this morning. Um, you know, I don't know if you guys have ever heard this. Um, my wife has, has definitely heard this. Uh, if you're a wife in the room, you've probably heard this and fear these words, these, these infamous words that a husband or uh, do-it-yourself type of guy says. Is the, uh, is, and it's these, these words, I can do that. <laughs> That's usually where it goes. You know, my family, we, growing up, you know, we were the, like, we, we, we wanted to do things cheaper. We wanted to do it ourselves. Uh, we could do that. We could figure, we could build a shop. We can run our own water line. We could build our own room. Uh, up in the house and convert ag space to a, to a livable space. Um, we could do that. Uh, and, and usually that is, you know, followed shortly by like, well, why don't you hire somebody to do that? It's like, no, we've got this. We, we can do this. And what inevitably happens at some point, or at least this was my experience, is that the, oh, I can do this, definitely turns into, no, you cannot do this. And you're usually in the middle of a 30-minute project. You're about three hours into a 30-minute project when you realize like, oh, maybe I might, I might need some help. Um, we, <laughs> a couple of stories, uh, you know, I, we, we, I said, we converted an attic space into my bedroom as, as a kid. And man, the house, like the room was great. No squeaky floors, like carpet looks great. It was awesome. Um, but I remember there was one time where, uh, I was working up there with my dad and, uh, at some point we're hammering away on some wood and building it ourselves. And at some point I hear, boom, and I see like a little red mist just kind of, and realized that my father had hit his thumb with a hammer at full, at full speed. And so uh, it wasn't until my mom got home that she made him then go to the doctor because it's fine. I got this. It's okay. I don't need any help. Uh, and she's like, no, you definitely need to go get stitches. And she was actually correct in that time. Uh, there was another time where we were moving a hot water heater and installing it ourselves because we can buy it, we can put it in there, we, it, it's, it's simple enough. We got this. And, uh, and again, about, you know, four hours into this one-hour project that we said was super easy, we were four hours in, frustrations are arising, and, and we're like, we're finally in the last spot, can't figure out how to get this hot water heater. So my dad in that moment picks up this, hot, this giant hot water tank by himself, and I got this, moves it, and then proceeds to drop it on his foot. Uh, and and uh, so there was another emergency room visit. He, my mom was correct. He needed stitches. Um, and, you know, I, I tended to take this this attitude as well. Uh, I, my wife is, is shocked by why I don't like going to the doctor because I'm fine. I don't need that. And I was helping on another hot water uh, tank project, funnily enough, and I kneeled down and managed to cut my knee open pretty severely and, uh, just, you know, took some duct tape and a paper towel and kind of wrapped it up. And I was like, you need to go to the doctor. And I said, nah, it's fine. We're good. Just, they're just going to take my money. I still have a scar from that. <laughs> And most recently, I have, uh, if you guys, I don't know if you guys have talked with, with me throughout the years, but I've had truck issues. Always something. My truck has a pretty much a new engine at this point, uh, but the rest of the truck has about 200,000 miles on this mug. And so as parts, you know, are needing to be changed, I said, I could do that myself. And, uh, you know, again, 30, uh, three hours into a 30-minute project, 
It's like, nah, I got this. This is fine. This is fine. Um, but there was one in particular that I realized I needed, I did need some help, and I had to break down and actually ask for help. We've got a very thin driveway, and I was changing my wife's vehicle, which for some reason is still one of those situations that I am not entirely sure all the specs of her car. I know mine because I've worked on it so much, but like I still have to go and do research on her car. Um, and so I was changing her oil, and uh, I had gotten all the supplies, and, uh, you know, her, her car was parked behind my car. So there's no way my truck could move. Uh, but again, it's, it's a simple oil change. I got this. I've done this a thousand times. It's fine. Um, it wasn't until after I drained the oil that I realized, oops, I definitely don't have the right filter on this thing. <laughs> I, like, I have a filter that filters the oil and it has to be the right size or else it doesn't work. And I realized that was wrong. And so I, and, at that point, I'm sitting there like, how the heck am I supposed to get my truck out? I don't have any more oil. I can't, like, fix my wife's car because it's, it's empty. And so I had to break down, and I had to call uh, Mr. Bill McConnell to come help me. Because, mind you, it's 7 o'clock at night because uh, I waited until that long, and it is quickly approaching dark. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the next, one, the next O'Reilly's is several miles away. So he picks me up. I say, I did the bill. hey, Bill, I'm so sorry. I, uh, I need some help. Can you, can you come pick me up? Yeah, man, I got you. So he just drops everything and drives me over, and we get the stuff, and I drive back. I'm like, man, Bill, thank you so much for your help. And so he's, hey, do you need help? I'm like, no, man, I got this. We're good. We're good. I, I just needed this one part. And so he drives away, and I get underneath the car, and I realize, oh, they gave me another wrong part. <laughs> so now we're round two on the same particular part, and I have to, hey, Bill, would you, would you come pick me up again? <laughs> I uh, got the wrong part. It is now 9 o'clock, and I'm having to get the flashlights out to get to my vehicle. Um, and so, you know, I just, we eventually got it, and it works, and I haven't had to do that since. I've learned from that lesson. But I had, I had to ask for help at that moment. And, you know, it was, it was, it was wild because it was super encouraging to me, uh, riding with Bill, because I felt so bad for disrupting his life. Uh, but, man, like, he, he's like, hey, I'm... I, I'm, I'm, he just dropped his car, dropped whatever he was doing, and he just drove over. And as we, you know, we had these spiritual conversations as we were driving, he was telling me his testimony and, and how he came to know the Lord. And, and even as he's, he's sharing about how the Lord saved him, like I even saw like tears in his eyes of just remembering the grace that the Lord had shown. And I was refreshed driving with him both times. Like it was just, it was, it was great. But both times, I mean, I had to, like, it ended up being this moment where I just was, was encouraged, frustrated myself, but, but he didn't, I didn't feel like I had burdened him with, with anything. Man, he, it was, it was, it was, it was restful. So this morning, we are, we were continuing in the book of Mark. Uh, we're, we're, we're moving through, and, and last week, we talked a little bit about, um, uh, we talked about the Sabbath, how Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. You have these Pharisees that are sitting here and they're asking Jesus, now why don't you and your disciples, you know, like, like why are you doing work? Why are you picking food on the Sabbath? Like, you're, why are you being unfaithful to the, to the law? And the way we talked about was that worship is, is truly what God desires from his people. That, that taking a Sabbath and taking time to rest is, is, is actually first and foremost a, matter, a position of the heart. And it is worship. It is, God, I, I, I need to work. I feel this need to work. But you get, told me to, to take a break. And so I'm, I'm willing to trust you and for your provision and to take this break. Not only that, but the Sabbath, the Sabbath was also made for man. That he, he wants to give his people good gifts. And one of those good gifts is a day of rest. To get to just enjoy what the Lord had given 
um, in, 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 our, in our lives, you know, and to enjoy creation. And the last is that the, that the king would usher in the ultimate Sabbath rest, that Jesus ultimately would bring in this true Sabbath rest that, that goes far beyond just a simple day of the week. And so today, uh, there's, as, I'm re- as I was reading this passage and preparing, I'm realizing that Jesus himself is that rest. That Jesus is the goal of this rest. Would you guys stand with me? We're going to be in Mark chapter 3, and we're going to read the verses 1 through 6. We have to stand in honor of God's word. And, um, and, and so we're, we're going to start this. And um, I'm, going to turn, I want, I'm going to start a couple of verses before Chapter 2, verse 27, he says, And so he, being Jesus, told him the Sabbath was made for man, not the man for Sabbath. So then the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Verse 1, Jesus entered the synagogue again, and a man was there who had a shriveled hand. And in order to accuse him, the Pharisees were watching him closely to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath. And so he told the man with the shriveled hand, Stand before us. And he said to them, Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? Or to do evil, to save life or to kill. But they, being the, the Pharisees, were silent. After looking around at them with, an, with anger, he was grieved at their, heart, their hardness of hearts. And he told the man, stretch out your hand. And so he stretched it out and his hand was immediately restored. And immediately the Pharisees went out and started plotting with the Herodians against him on how they might kill him. All right, you guys can be seated. Man, the king... That is our rest. Man, Jesus is the end goal for us as believers. Um, and so I, I, want, I want us to take a look at, at where, where, where we see this, where we got it. So uh, the, the first point that, that, we, that we need to address is, is, is this, is that the presence of God came to us in, in, in chapter, verses 1 and 2. All right. So in this moment, we see Jesus, that he was walking into the synagogue. The synagogue, you had, they had the temple, which is the big place where they would do these big sacrifices. But you had the synagogue where every Sabbath day, the people would gather together and they would, uh, they would, they would hear the reading of the law. They would hear the reading of the prophets, the scriptures. And, and the, as they would read, then they would sit down and then they would... Uh, they would um, they would, they would hear from the rabbi. He would begin to teach uh, these people. And, uh, and, and, you know, what we see, this first, this first thing is that this was actually a habit of Jesus. I mean, this is not the first time that he has entered into the, Sabbath, or entered into the synagogue on the Sabbath. Uh, and it, it won't be the last. There's even times after this where on the Sabbath day he goes into the synagogue. He begins to pull out the scripture and begins to uh, teach the word and, and how he is actually the fulfillment of this. But this time is a little bit is a little bit different. Um, we see after he entered into the temple, he sees like we, we, we have the Pharisees that are coming. They're they're looking at them. They know what Jesus is going to do. He's already kind of developed this habit, and uh, so they're looking to see if he was going to if he was going to break the law. You know, in this moment, I, th- I want us to, to not miss what, what is happening. You have this place, this, 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 this area that Jesus would, would come and he was trying to point people to the fact that he was the king. He was the ultimate fulfillment of the scriptures. And he didn't just show this simply by his teachings and saying, hey, I'm God. But he would do this by the, the healing of people. You remember the man who was, who was paralyzed and his friends brought him on a mat and lowered him down. 
He would do this by casting out demons. He would teach with this, such authority. And so now you have this moment in this situation where Jesus is again entering into the place where the word of the Lord was supposed to be kept and it was supposed to be guarded. Jesus is entering in as the fulfillment of this. He's entering into this place as he's, as he's walking in. So that's, that's the first thing I want us, the first detail that I want us to see. Second is that we see the Pharisees and, and, and their response. They are, they are watching Jesus closely to see if he would actually end up breaking the law. The law was very important to the people of Israel. This is a huge, a huge thing because it was important for the Lord. Uh, Exodus 20 they had been led out of, the, of slavery, out of the land of Egypt, and they were given these, these laws that they were supposed to follow. Uh, the first, begin, it begins with how to, uh, how to relate to the Lord. You shall worship no other gods. You won't make any idols, right? Like you are to keep my day holy, right? And then they, would, they transitioned to even how we were, they were supposed to relate to other people, other image bearers within the land. And he continued to give these, 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 and this was actually the formal establishment of Israel, by the way. Like when they are, now they are the people of Israel. Before they were just a tribe, but now they are a nation. And so he continues to give them these laws that are supposed to help them how to run the nation. How they're supposed to pursue justice. How they're supposed to pursue righteousness within, within the land. And then God even gives them laws that are, that are to help them worship God rightly. It wasn't just a, hey, you, 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 know, you have to do these things and then you're holy. But it was, man, our God is so holy and perfect and pure. He is the holiest of all. There's nobody like him. And so to approach him uh, flippantly was, was an offense against the holy and righteous God. It was unworthy of who God was. So he would give these laws that they would be able to, um, to, to know how they were supposed to worship. And even to the point where they were giving laws, he gave laws on even the priests who were working in the temple, that they had a certain standard that they had to, that they had to live by. This law was given to the people of Israel were, to, were intended to, have, to point their hearts back to the Lord and to help them be obedient to their God. But yet, it also, at the same time, revealed where their hearts were actually far from God. I mean, you, it's hard to look at these laws and say, you shall have no other gods before me, and then to look at your life and be like, man, I, I, am, I have other gods in my life that I'm holding up before the Lord. I mean, you, you can't read the word and not see yourself in there at times and be like, man, I, I, I see how far away my own heart is because I can't even follow these actions. These actions are hard because my heart is not in the right spot. And the Pharisees, they, 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 they were missing the point. We talked a little bit last week how they had created a bunch of legalistic rules that, that people had to follow, uh, these, these burdens that they would heap upon people so that they would be able to, to keep the Sabbath day holy. And so, you know, they, couldn't, they could throw one ball up in the air and catch it with the same hand, but if they caught it with the other hand, they were unrighteous before God, according to their rules. It wasn't given by God, it was given by the Pharisees. They, how they would, they, would, they would tie their houses together with ropes so that technically these are one, this is one house and so I can walk away and get to, you know, 1,999 steps and not be considered work. They missed these, these goals. They, they missed the point. The goal of the Sabbath, God gave this to them to provide rest for them. 
and for us to truly trust in the Lord's provision. And these men were supposed to know the word forwards, backwards, and sideways. And they have made up rules for themselves over time and are now holding that they are now holding the Lord of the Sabbath to their standards so that they had an excuse to discredit his own righteousness and authority as he's teaching. Isn't that crazy? Jesus points out how he is the king and the Lord and the creator of the Sabbath and they are not holding him by the Lord's standards, but they're holding him by their standards. Isn't that crazy? Why? But they were simply trying to discredit this this guy. These man-made rules are somehow more righteous and glorious than the ones that the Lord gave them because God's laws weren't clear enough. Finally, this last detail that we see in the first two verses is that there's a man with a shriveled hand. This is a really interesting thing to immediately jump into. We mentioned before that the laws were given to, be, uh, to the priests in order that they might be considered holy. And he required the perfect sacrifice, the spotless lamb to do the sacrifices. And they had to be under the perfect conditions. And if you were to approach the throne, you had to be fully clean. And you had to take off all of your, your other you know, like ornate garments to put on just pure sackcloth. So that way that they, you could see the blood as they, were, as they were offering sacrifices to the Lord. Because, and why? Because he himself was perfect. Not only that, God, God even expected that the people who were to tend the temple, to tend to the ark, the people who had to be, un, they had to be clean and unblemished before him. Um, turn to Leviticus chapter 21, or you, can look, or you can look at it, or you can just listen as I, as I read it. But man, they, they had all these sort of laws uh, that tell them that the priest is not to make himself ceremonially unclean for a dead person among his relatives. Uh, they are to except for his immediate family, his mother, father, son, daughter, they may, uh, he may make himself unclean uh, for his unmarried virgin sister and his immediate family. They said that if you have incest within your family line, that you couldn't be a priest. And we even get to this point in verse 16, it says this, the Lord spoke to Moses, tell Aaron, none of your descendants throughout your generations who has a physical defect is to come near the, uh, to present the food of his God. In verse 21, he goes on. No descendant of the priest of Aaron who has a, de- a defect is to come near the presence of the food offering to the Lord. He has a defect and is not to come near to present the food of, of his God. He may eat the food of his God from what is especially holy as well as from what is, uh, from what is holy. But because he has a defect, he must not go near the curtain or approach the altar. He is not to desecrate my holy place for I am the Lord who set them apart. Moses said to Aaron that his sons and, or to, and all of his sons to, and to all the Israelites. Even within these laws, he says, like, you as a priest must be completely holy. And if you have any blemish, you are unworthy to tend to the, to the, the, Lord's, the Lord's work. They, he was not, only the high priest was allowed to go in, but they're not even allowed to approach, approach the curtain that separated them. This altar that they would have to make sacrifices on. They weren't even allowed to approach the altar because they were considered imperfect. They were unholy because God is so holy, he expected these things of his own people. Mind you, too, when we talk about the temple, 
we're not talking just about a few, again, like legalistic rules, but we are talking, it's like the temple represented the very presence of God. Psalm 137, we have this, this psalm of lament as the people are being sent into exile and they're weeping over their loss, but they are weeping over Zion that they no longer get to be in the presence of God, that they are taken away from their land. According to the, God, the stand that God laid out, nobody from the line of the priest of Aaron may approach the altar to give an offering or a curtain on the day of atonement. God expected total, complete holiness, like an unblemished lamb. The connection of physical defects to illness was oftentimes uh, connected even with sin. Uh, first, you know, first, or sorry, uh, John chapter 9, you have this blind man that walks up and they said, man, who, who sinned? Was it him or was his parents? Like, Whose fault is it that this, this man is blind? Like, who's sin? And he says, it's, it's not. But there is this connection. And so even this man who had a shriveled arm for, for however long, this paralyzed arm, he was, like, he could have been connected to sin, right? But for this man to approach the presence of God, he was, it was impossible. He was blemished. He was unholy. His deformity would have hindered his ability to work. So he was potentially even living in poverty. Not only that, but he was even prevented oftentimes from fulfilling the laws that the, that the Pharisees had put in place in order to keep the law. This man with a shriveled arm was, was it, it was a huge deal for them. I want to encourage you to, if, if you're taking notes, you, know, you might write down uh, Deuteronomy chapter 30. Verses 11 through 20. Um, but 11 through 14 says this. This command I give you today is certainly not too difficult or beyond your reach. It is, not, it is not in heaven so that you have to ask who will go up to heaven and get it for us and proclaim it uh, to us so that we may follow it. And it is not across the sea that you have to ask who will cross the sea and get it for us and proclaim it to us so that we may follow it. But this message is, is very near to you in your mouth and in your heart so that you might follow it. You see, like in chapter 29 of Deuteronomy, God was reestablishing the covenant that his people had broken. They had turned away from God. They had rebelled against God in their heart. And he was telling them, like, listen, if you continue down this path, your land will be destroyed, your inheritance enslaved, like all these terrible things, this judgment will come. And the nations are going to ask, like, man, what happened to Israel? And, he's, and, and they're going to say, well, they, they turned away from their, from their God. And they broke his covenant. And so God is reestablishing this covenant with them. And he, and he, and he says, like, listen. So this message that I'm telling you is not far away. You have to figure out who's going to get on a ladder and climb to heaven to go and come back and tell us, or who's going to have to go across the sea in order to be able to get this word and tell us. He says it's actually been close. God, in, even in the Old Testament, God in his mercy has always been close to his people through the message and the word and the prophets that he gave. But now we get to Mark chapter 3. You know, uh, John chapter 1, verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt with us. Where before this man was unworthy and unable of being a priest of God because he was considered blemished and unholy. Now we see Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath, the very essence and image, perfect image of our God enter into the synagogue and he sees that man. He says, hey, stand up before us. 
in the presence of God has come to earth. He came to this man. He came to the Pharisees. It was not that they had to try and reach him and go up into heaven. It wasn't that they had to go across. Christ came to his people. I don't know if you guys are amazed by that or not, but it's amazing. How often do we forget this fact? How often do we tend to set ourselves to feel like the Pharisees that we thought that we've been a believer for a long time. We, go, we went to the right schools. We, we had all the, the, um, the trainings. And that we are above needing any sort of actual help in our lives, whether that be practical or spiritual. Forgetting that it took Jesus himself coming down to earth to save us. We needed somebody to come down to save us. How often do we feel too broken or unworthy, or too far away from God because maybe we've had some sort of sin in our lives that we are like, man, if just people knew. Man, if people knew, then I would be ousted from the body or I would lose these friendships. How do we forget that Jesus actually came so that we would be forgiven of our sins? How often do we forget how glorious Christ himself is, that the perfect son of man, taking on the form of man, made it, made from dirt to die on a hill that he created and to be killed by the same people he came to save and continues to work through those people that he was redeemed in his body who have now been empowered by the Holy Spirit. How often do we forget what it means when we say Christ came to us? And when we read this word, Christ came into our mess willingly upon his own authority, his own volition. Not urged on to, but out of his love and his mercy. How often do we forget this in our lives? The second point is this, is that the very presence of God restores our hearts. Let's go back to Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 15 and 20. He says this, See today, I have set before you life and prosperity, death and adversity. For I am commanding you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways and to keep his statutes and and commands and ordinances so that you may live and multiply and that the Lord your God may bless you in the land that you are entering to possess. But if you turn your hearts away and you do not listen, you are led astray to bow and worship to other gods and to serve them. I tell you today that you will certainly perish and will not prolong your days in the land you are entering to possess across the Jordan. I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Choose life so that you and your descendants may live. Love the Lord your God and obey going back to, to Mark chapter 3. What does it say in verse 3 and 4? He, he, he told the man with the shriveled hand, hey, stand before us. And Jesus said to them, to the Pharisees, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil, to save a life or to kill? But these, these, these leaders, these people who were supposed to know the law, they were completely silent. In the scenes, the Pharisees are working to see if Jesus was going to break the letter of the man-made laws. But in Deuteronomy chapter 29, God is reminding all the priests of the past 
The people had abandoned the covenant he had made with them. They, were, they had made idols of different gods, abandoning the one true God. The Lord told them that if they were to break the covenant again with the Lord, then that the nations would see the judgment of God that he would bring upon his people. But yet, in this renewal of the covenant that the Lord was making, he says, hey, I'm going to actually circumcise your heart. I'm going to give you a new heart. This is important for a couple reasons. One, that the Lord desires obedience rather than sacrifice. It doesn't matter how much blood was spilled on their behalf for their sins or if the people did the correct rituals. The hearts of the people were far from God and therefore they were disobedient. We see in Deuteronomy 30 that obedience was not simply just the actions but the heart by which that they were actually performed. For those of you who are parents or those of you who have been children, especially ones with, with, with siblings, you know that this difference matters, that the heart matters. There's a quick, uh, quick slide. I don't know if we have the, if we have the picture up there. Maybe not. Uh, but there's a, a card that was, uh, oh, there it is. It says, I was forced to write this to eat. Love, Josh. <laughs> this camp, summer camp had these kids write these letters to their parents to say, oh, camp's going well. I'm learning so much. And this guy's over here. I was forced to write this to eat. <laughs> they wouldn't let me eat if I didn't write my, a card to my parents. But it, like, how often in our faith, like, does this tend to be the, 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 the prevailing heart in our own life? I'm going to love people because I need to be saved. <laughs> Or I need, God, I, need, I need God to give me the food or to provide the finances or to, to whatever. And, and so I'm going to do these things so I'm right before God. The other part that you should be asking yourself is how do I actually circumcise my own heart? My heart's in my body. Like, and this is the second point. This is not something that we can do ourselves. You see that circumcision for the people of God was actually a sign that they were a part of the community of God. It's a physical sign of an inward change, right? Just like baptism, right? It is a physical, ex, like, physical expression of an inward change. But true circumcision of the heart was actually the true measure of the people of God. If they were not circumcised of the heart, they were not of God. When we look back at the story, Jesus is asking this question that should have drawn up this, this passage in Deuteronomy chapter 30 in their minds. Matthew 12 actually gives us another, another picture of this. He gives us another perspective of the same moment. Um, he, he says to these Pharisees, he says, How many of you would have a sheep that fell into a pit would not take on the, uh, uh, fell on the Sabbath that you would not take time to lift it out of the pit to save it? How much more valuable is this is, is a human, is a person. You know, they were, Matthew is written primarily to Jews, and he was focusing on the heart behind what they were going to do, right? Like, like the, the, the letter of the law and trying to kind of draw out their hypocrisy. But Mark chapter 3 doesn't go the sheep route. He just says, is it lawful to do good or is it lawful to do evil? He's bringing up this passage. What is, what, is he, what is he talking about? Christ is placing this challenge before them to choose life or good is to love the Lord with your soul and with your whole heart. But to choose evil or death is to ignore the Lord 
and to turn your heart astray. And if they were to answer, I mean, these people, if they were to answer, well, to do evil, would be to oppose the law that they hold so dear. They would say, oh, I would do evil. To answer good, they would have to admit that they are wrong. They'd have to let down their, their laws, to let down their position, and choose to follow the Lord. But in their own silence, they are actually rejecting Christ, rejecting their God, and are unwilling to listen to the word of the Lord. And Christ desired their heart, their whole heart. But the situation is he's the only one who can actually restore our hearts that have been so hardened by our sin or or whatever issues have been going on in our lives. But the same challenge is actually placed before us too. To choose good or to choose evil, to choose life or to choose death. Nobody wants to answer, well, yeah, I'm going to do evil on the Sabbath because... That's evil. That's bad. But to remain silent and to ignore the words of the Lord is to refuse Christ. And to choose life is to humble ourselves in our hearts and admit that we actually need a Savior. Man, where in our lives is the Lord calling us to choose life? Where... Where are we holding on to maybe like a legalistic rule rather than choosing to show the heart of Christ to people that are in the body or to show the heart of Christ to people that maybe didn't do things like how we would expect them to, but man, like they, they, they were doing it to serve the Lord. Where do we need to admit that we need some help? And the Lord is our rest because he actually changes our hearts when we respond to him in worship. We cannot miss today responding to the Lord. I think all of us, anybody willing to admit that they're perfect? Okay. So we've all got things in our lives that, we are, that we're willing to admit are not faithful to the Lord. How are we going to respond to the Lord and allow him to change our hearts? The final thing is this, is that the presence of God gives us life. In verse five, verses 5 and 6. He looked around them with, with anger, and he was grieved at the hardness of their hearts. And he told the man, stretch out your hand. So that he, and he stretched it out, and his hand was, was restored. In the final two verses, we see that Jesus tells the man to extend his arm, and immediately it was restored before everybody. Remember the implications that we talked about before, how... This man probably wasn't able to work, wasn't able to fulfill the law, and according to even the law, he was not able to even be a part of the priest. He was not even allowed to approach the presence of God. In this moment, you know, Christ later talks about this, or or First Peter talks about this, how we are a kingdom of priests. How our hearts are transformed, our hearts are restored to the Lord by his grace and his mercy, that we are, we are priests within that. Um, in this moment, this man with a shriveled arm, associated with sin, unable to work, unable to fulfill the law, is just there to learn. He wasn't even, probably, most likely, probably wasn't a plant from the Pharisees. Christ gives this man the ability to work. He gives this man to uh, the ability to faithfully obey the commands of the Lord. But ultimately, 
where he would have been prevented from entering the presence of God in that moment, in that one restor- restoration of the hand, he was now allowed back into this, to the presence of the Lord. This would have prevented him from approaching the presence of God, but Christ restored that too. Romans 6, 20-23. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free with regards to righteousness. When you were slaves of sin, like you weren't under the rule of, of righteousness. So what fruit was produced then from the things that you were now ashamed of? As he's writing to believers. He's like, man, you had these things in your past life that maybe you were ashamed of. I mean, what was the fruit of those things? The outcome of those things was death. But now, since you have been set free from sin and have been enslaved to God, you have fruit which results in sanctification. And the outcome of that sanctification is what? Eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. In certain moments when we look at our failures, we look at our weaknesses, we look at our shortcomings, we look at our failures where we have failed to lead our families, have failed to be faithful to the Lord. We've fallen into this habitual sin and we don't know how we're supposed to get back. It's easy to see every single way in which we have fallen short in this life. But listen, guilt is not the goal of Christ. The goal is not even necessarily fixing the problem that you're facing, whether it be, again, your finances, your home, whatever. It's not even to fix that problem. The goal of Christ is that Christ would be our end, and through him we would have life. And that only comes through the presence of God coming to dwell with his people. The the goal of Christ is not guilt. It is life. It is life. I can't remember if I've shared the story here, but I'm going to share it anyway. There was a uh, pastor who was running this very successful college ministry. And, but in, in the closet, he was, he was uh, struggling with pornography pretty consistently. And it was hardening his heart, searing his own heart. And to have a pastor admit that they had struggled with pornography is to disqualify themselves from ministry. So to admit that he is struggling with this sin was to lose his job, his livelihood, his ability to provide for his family, and the very ministry that the Lord had called him to. That's a scary thought. I think for anybody, if you say, hey, I'm struggling, and that struggle was going to cost you your job, you'd be like, yeah, that's pretty stressful. But one day he recognized that the sin was destroying him and was eating him. And he confessed the sin to his, his staff and caused him to lose his, his job. But the staff and the body began to come around and actually work to restore this man. And so even though he's not able to do necessarily ministry, this man found life. And he would, he would tell you, Losing my ministry was the greatest thing that ever happened to me because I found Christ. Where in your life are you hiding from the presence of God? And where can we hide 
But where are we, where are we ashamed of? Where, where is there sin that is in our lives or a failure in our lives that we just, that, you know, we can go to church, but maybe we just got this burden that's just kind of weighing on us constantly that we're constantly thinking about. We can't seem to let go because it's, it's just too heavy. Where do you need the presence of the Lord? You know, the presence of the Lord is even found within believers as God has given us his Holy Spirit. And so if we are willing to listen to the Spirit and be obedient to God and his word, then wherever we go, the presence of God then dwells, right? So where in your life or who in your life needs the presence of God? In our relationships here in the body, God desires reconciliation. In our finances, God desires our trust. In our sin, God desires restoration. In our hearts, God desires that we would have faith in him and would, and would have a new heart. In your life, where do you need to see God give you life this morning? Where do you need the Lord to give you rest? Where is your heart burdened? Where is your heart turning from God's word? Where is God calling you to actually maybe take another step of faith? I mean, Matt mentioned this, like, hey, some of us maybe aren't, you know, taking an active role within the body and serving. And maybe the Lord's asking you to take a step of faith. It's interesting. Is that this man whose hand was restored is, 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 is dead. He died eventually. I don't know when, but he's dead. Unless he's a vampire, and that's, that's, a, whole, that's a whole separate thing. He's dead. Jesus' disciples, sir, are dead. The men who saw Jesus, the, the man who was on the mat is, is dead. He's gone. He was healed for his life, and then he, he died. But in those moments, the man on the cross, look at the, man, the, other, the, like the two criminals, and one that was like jeering at Christ, and the other one was like, hey, shut up, he's, he's God. And God said, hey, today you will be with me in paradise. Our greatest need is not just the fix of our individual situations, but it is actually the forgiveness of our sins. And even though these, these men might be dead, I can tell you that because they received forgiveness for their sins and they had experienced the presence of God, that the rest of their lives they had rest. Not that it was easy, but that they had rest. The man on the cross is still crucified, yet in that case, their lives were restored because of their faith and the forgiveness of sins, bought and paid for by the blood of Christ. So today, hear the word of the Lord. And Jesus is our rest. He's the Lord of the Sabbath, but he is ultimately the rest. Let us today not fail to encourage one another while it is today so that anybody in this room who's a follower of Christ, who's a part of the body would fail to enter into the rest that is Christ. Let us encourage one another that we would not be confused or deceived by sin in our lives. Let's encourage one another. Let us confess our sins to one another. There's something about having to tell my brother, hey, I sinned today, and here's how I sinned, that makes it a little bit more real in my life. Makes it a little bit more gross, right? 
I feel it's really easy just to confess sin to God, but we're really hiding from the Lord. And today can be the day of salvation. If you are here and you have never made a decision to follow Christ, today can be the day of salvation. There's somebody that might be in this room that's like, hey, I need, I need rest. You'd forgotten that Christ had actually come to you to give you rest. That he came to give you a new heart, but he came also to give you life and life abundant. Today is that day. I want to encourage you guys and every single one of us. How do we, how do, we do this? How do we receive rest? We do what the Pharisees did not do. And we admit our need for our Savior in a real way. So I'm going to ask the band to come up. And, uh, and we're going to take some time to pray. If there's someone who's in the room who, who does not know Christ, come and talk to one of the pastors that will be up front. If you're in need of rest, man, come to the front and, and ask the Lord that he would pray. You don't have to pray with one of us. You can just come pray at the altar. But let us not miss how good God is and the rest that he wants to give us. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your word. God, how it is refreshing to our soul. God, thank you that the end of, that your end is not just to make us feel guilty over our sins, but that we, you want us to move past that to, to you. God, I just pray that today for those who have not received your mercy, God, that you would open up their eyes to be able to see the truth of your word but God, also that we would be faithful believers, that we would take your presence to wherever it needs to go and that that presence lived out through your people would shine your light and would provide rest for those people. God, I pray for every single believer in here, if there's anybody struggling with guilt, with shame, with sin, with fear, with whatever it is, Lord, that you would provide rest for them. We love you, and we ask these things in your name. Amen.